Good, uh, good morning, everyone. As just the last few people come and join us, uh, can I um, welcome you? It's really great to have you here at Long Crenna Baptist Church. A particularly warm welcome if you're visiting. Uh, it's great that you're with us today. Let me just open the service in a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we praise you for this new day, uh, the gift of life that you've given us. We thank you for the privilege we have to meet with your people. And we thank you that this morning we can think about the incredible gift of life that you long to offer each of us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that it's an incredible gift that you give us. And so I pray this morning that we would meet with you, that your spirit would lead us and point us to the Lord Jesus, and we would leave here rejoicing in the amazing truth of the gospel. Amen. The reading today is taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 9, and that's page 1776 in the Church Bible. So that's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 9. So here we have a letter um, from Paul to the Ephesians in Asia Minor. And it's the widely held belief, according to my Bible, um, that the words of Paul in this writing were meant for a wider audience. And the letter was probably a circular letter sent to many churches and assemblies of believers in Asia Minor. And the church today faces many of the same decisions uh, the churches in Asia Minor faced when they received Paul's letter. So our options are similar to the ones they had. And so it does have a relevance to every Christian today. So let's read. <coughs> As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the great cravings of our flesh and following its, its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Well, we're on to the uh, second in our sermon series in Ephesians. And in case you're wondering, the way we've decided to split the preaching up is that I'm going to do the first of a half of the letter, um, and then Mark will do the second half. Um, the idea is hopefully it'll give more sort of continuity to the uh, to the preaching. But you know, we're always keen to have your feedback, so let us know how you think it goes. So when I'm preaching in the morning, Mark will be leading, and um, and vice versa. One of the um, most influential books I for me growing up as, as a teenager was, um, or two books, sorry, describing something from the same, from different angles. Uh, the Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkerson and The Run, Baby Run by Nicky Cruz. 
I'm sure a lot of you would have read them as well. Uh, Nicky Cruz, in case you don't know him, was the leader of one of the um, toughest gangs in New York in the, the 60s. Uh, somebody who would uh, kill without uh, remorse. Somebody who was afraid of no one. Until he met this, um, what he described as a skinny preacher, a skinny street preacher called David Wilkerson. And God used David Wilkerson to change Nicky Cruz's life with three words. Jesus loves you. For somebody like Nicky Cruz who grew up without a father, with a mother who said she didn't love him, um, and who's never experienced love in his life, these words really just got under his skin and he threatened to kill this preacher. This guy who dared to come into his world. But this is what David Wilkerson said to him. He said, you could kill me, Nicky. You could come in a thousand pieces and lay them out on the street. But every piece would cry out, Jesus loves you. And you'll never be able to run from that. He carries on, Nicky, I'm not scared of you. You talk tough, but inside you're just like all the rest of us. You're afraid. You're sick of your sin. You're lonely. But Jesus loves you. In the first sermon in the series in chapter 1, we finish by looking at that prayer of Paul for the season. We'd just like to turn back uh, to that, um, page 1173. And um, midway down to verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And he comes back to that power in, the, uh, in chapter 3 later on, but that power that God used to raise Christ from the dead is not just a sort of physical power or ability, it's also the power of love, the power of grace. God's grace is the love that he shows us even when we don't deserve it, even when we are unlovable. And we talked about that last time, didn't we, that it was in love that God shows us to be holy and blameless. It was in love that he adopted us as his children. It was not to do with anything that we had done. Nicky Cruz's life was changed as he grasped God's grace, as he realised that nothing in this world can match the love of God. And he's a great example, he's, uh, he's proof of the power of God to change lives. And uh, helps us realise that there is no one who strays so far from God that it's impossible for God to bring them back into his love. Well, the sermon this morning is entitled New Life in Christ, and I'm going to look at it in two sections, uh, the old life, and the new life, and then consider the cause of the change, that it's God's grace that gives us life. So let's have a look at the old life in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. And the first description of the old life, of what the Ephesians were like when they were without Jesus, is dead. Verse 1 starts, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So when we use the term dead to describe something these days, apart from physical death, uh, it's used in the context of, of dull, of boring, of unexciting. 
Uh, the opposite is somebody who's full of life, somebody who is a lively, energetic person, um, someone who's the best social life, somebody who loves posting things on Facebook to tell everybody how lively they are. But what Paul is saying here is that even if you consider yourself a real live wire, you can still be dead. You can still be living dead. Because the most important thing is not your personality, it's not your looks, your intelligence, your popularity. It's not the number of parties you've been to. It's the state of your soul. It is your spiritual life. To be spiritually dead is to be separated from God. And the two ways in which we are separated from God are described here in this passage um, by Paul as being in transgressions and being in sins. The word transgressions has the idea of going our own way and going beyond the boundaries that have been set for us and making a conscious decision to do something that is against God's will. In other words, it's basically being a rebel. The word sin here is is the idea of missing the mark, not living up to God's perfect standards. Uh, When your best just isn't good enough. idea of a failure. And if you're worried about failure, which I guess all of we are are in some way or another, then do please come again this evening, as Mark said, when we'll be looking at that topic. But whether we're a rebels or failures, we're all by nature sinners. And therefore we're all spiritually dead. And our spiritual death was the result of the fall. If you remember in, in Genesis, God said to Adam and Eve, this is what he instructed them, he said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as we know, there was one thing they couldn't do, and that's the one thing they did choose to do. They disobeyed God, and the result was immediate spiritual death, separation from God, and later physical death. So we were dead. The second characteristic of our way of life is that we were slaves. The idea of slavery came up in chapter 1, if you remember. We talked about Christ um, redeeming us, which means paying the price to have us released from slavery. But here it gives us a bit more detail about what that slavery looks like. And what we see here is it's an inability to do anything other than, first of all, what those around us are doing, and secondly, what our human nature tells us to do. It's what psychologists, psychologists have spent their lives working out um, they're the greatest influence. Is it a nurture or nature? Is it a social environment in which we live or is it our genes? Well, in this passage, it's set through that it's both. Um, first of all, it's the environment. Look at verse 2. You follow the ways of this world. In other words, you are a product of your environment, of your culture. It's very easy to underestimate the powerful influence of the world around us, in the opinions that we absorb, the, uh, the behaviour that we, we mimic, uh, the values that we hold. And to follow the ways of the world is also, as it says here, to follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobediently. That is the person commonly referred to as the devil. As we said last time, we are in a spiritual battle. The devil is a real spiritual person. 
somebody who doesn't want us to follow Jesus, and so he'll do all he can to, to lead us astray, to make us ignore, make us to disobey God. And Paul makes it clear here that he's not just getting at the Ephesians here, um, who want to follow the ways of the world. In verse 3 he says, all of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. He's saying we all followed our natural human instincts. We did what we wanted to do. And the other thing is that when you are in that situation, you think that you are free to do what you want to do. No one is telling you what you should do. And you are able to discern between what is good and what is uh, bad, what is right and what is wrong. The thing is that since we have a sinful nature that wants to please ourselves rather than please God, we will always be enslaved to our selfish desires and thoughts. We'll always be thinking about how something affects me. So we were spiritually dead, we were slaves. And finally, as a consequence, in verse 3, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now people don't get um, quite worked up about the idea of an angry God, a wrathful God. Yeah, people can cope with a God of love, um, but an angry God? Surely those two don't go together. The trouble is, they equate God's anger with, with human anger. And human anger is very different from God's anger. Human anger is all about us. It's um, when we don't get our ways. It's when somebody offends us. It's when we can't have something that we want. That's when we lose patience, we lose our temper. We get angry. But God's anger is a righteous anger. It's a, it's a perfect, consistent and predictable reaction to evil. It's not the opposite of love, that, that would be hatred. You can love someone and still be angry at them if you want the best for them. If you offer someone a chance to be freed from slavery to sin, to be considered innocent of all sin, and they reject it because they think they know what is best, then righteous anger is the only legitimate response. So we were deserving of God's wrath because we failed to live up to God's standards, we rebelled against him. So what, what changed? What changed? That is the old life. What happened? Well the answer comes in two words in verse 4. And they are, but God. But God. It is God who made us alive. In the Greek sentence order, uh, it says here, but because da 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 da. The Greek sentence order actually runs like this, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in transgressions made us alive with Christ. It is by grace he has been saved. It looked as if the situation was totally hopeless. There was nothing that could be done about slavery to sin, about our guilt. And then the only one who could do something about it steps in. But God. And if you feel this morning that your situation is totally hopeless, that there is nothing that can be done for you. There is a God who can bring you spiritual life. We don't deserve it, and that is the amazing thing about grace, that he loved us even when we were dead in transgressions. He didn't wait until we made ourselves good enough, until we were more 
presentable, until we'd achieved enough spiritual brownie points, because we would never get to that point. But for him to save us was to deal with those three things that we looked at in the old life. He dealt with our spiritual death, he dealt with our, our, our slavery to sin, and he dealt with his own wrath. We were dead in our sins, but God made us alive with Christ. We were slaves to sin, but God raised us up with Christ. We were deserving of his wrath, but God has seated us with him in the heavenly realms. We saw um, in chapter 1 at the end, and that's uh, those verses I read, how God by his power raised Christ from the dead. He seated him at his right hand. And the amazing thing about chapter 2 is that God raised us up with him. He seated us in the heavenly realms with him. And that is another aspect of what it means to be in Christ. By being united with Christ, we share in his death, we share in his resurrection, we share in his exaltation. And that, as many of you know, is what baptism symbolises. As we go under the, the water, it symbolises that the sin that had previously ruled our lives has been put to death. That old life has been put to death. As we come back out of the water, we come up to new life in Christ. If death is being separated from God, then being made alive is being united with Christ. To be made alive is to live as we were meant to live, to be lived with meaning and purpose in relationship with God. It's to be born again as one of his children. The question we still need to ask is, why would God want to make us alive in Christ? Why did he do this um, if we didn't really deserve it? It's because of his great love for us. Look at verse 4. It's all in there in in different ways. It's um, because of his great love for us, because he's rich in mercy, by grace you have been saved. This mercy and grace, um, these are two flip sides of God's love. They're very um, Christian words, but used um, outside um, Christian context. But being shown mercy is not to receive a punishment that I deserve. I was condemned, I deserve God's wrath for my rebellion, for my failure. But God weighed that punishment because Jesus took it for me. So I didn't receive the punishment I deserved. Grace, on the other hand, is to receive a gift, to receive something positive, again, that I didn't deserve. And the gift that we've all received, if we are Christians, is salvation. All the spiritual blessings in Christ that we looked at last time. That is a gift of grace. We look here in verse 7, the reason God raised us up and seated us with Christ was in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. Grace is something that we as humans find so difficult to understand because it goes against much of our human instinct. Why should anyone want to give us anything for free? Um, I guess all of us at some stage have been um, victims of people appearing to, to offer a deal that is just too good to be true. 
and uh, usually turns out that it is too good, too good to be true because it's not true. It may be um, something where there is a great period before that you then have to pay for the thing which you're tricked into taking out. Maybe you're bombarded with uh, emails and all sorts of stuff after you've accepted this free gift. And you try and press the unsubscribe button and it doesn't work. But it's not just the suspicion that there's no such thing as a free lunch. It's not just that that makes us reluctant to accept a free gift. It's also the pride in us that says, I don't want to owe anybody anything. You know, I'm no man's debtor. Now, I, all I have, I've worked for myself. I deserve all I have. I don't want to owe anybody anything. The reason that we are not saved by our own works, it says here, is so that no one can boast, so that no one can boast in themselves about what they have done. It's not about us. It's all about what God has done for us. I think if you were to, to ask the average person in the street, what do you think you need to do to get to heaven? The answer probably come back, well, be good enough. I need to be good enough. But that's not the reply that Jesus gives. Jesus says, ask for help. Accept his gift of grace. It's grace that makes Christianity unique amongst all the, the world religions. You, know, you have the, the Buddhist Eightfold Path, you have the, uh, uh, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish, the Muslim the code of law, if you like. And what distinguishes a lot of the, the cults that would call themselves Christian from true Christianity that is that in all of them there is an element of salvation by works. And it's probably because of our natural scepticism about them, grace, our uh, desire to save ourselves, that Jesus talked about it so much. They didn't really try and define grace as a concept, but he often just gave examples of it in action. He pointed to the birds who, um, who gather their food without having to do anything to earn it. The sun that shines on the good and the bad. And he told a lot of parables to illustrate what grace was all about. One of the most well known of those is the parable of the, uh, the prodigal son. It's the story of a son who uh, demanded his share of the family inheritance and he went off and blew the lot. And when he hit rock bottom and realised the error of his ways, he decided to return to his father and ask for his forgiveness. He was going to come back to him and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But it was an amazing surprise. His father comes running out to him, gives him a big hug and says, let's have a party. And the words he uses to explain why are, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. An interesting thing about that story is that Many Christians who read it actually relate more to the older brother. The one who refuses to come to the party and says, look, I've been slaving for you for years. I've done everything you asked me to do. And yet you've never given me a party. And the reason we relate to him is because there is still a part of us that thinks, <clears throat> I deserve to go to heaven because all I, all I have done. I've lived a good life. I've done everything that you asked me to do. But to be saved is to trust in God's free gift, the death of his son, 
in our place. And back to verse 8 in Ephesians <coughs> chapter 2. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. That was the motto of the 16th century Protestant reformers. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. But although God has done all that is necessary for us to be saved, because although Jesus' death is sufficient for all, there comes a point where we have to trust in that. We have to trust in that act of salvation that Jesus did for us. And for some Christians they can point to an exact moment when they were converted and their life was changed from the old to the new. For some of you, maybe some of the young people who have been growing up in the church, maybe you can't point to a moment in your life when, when that happened. But whether you can point to a particular moment or not, if you've accepted God's gift, that gift of grace, if you've decided you want to follow Jesus Christ with your whole life and not the way of the world, then you've been made alive in Christ. You've been saved. And then one day when you stand before God and he asks you why should I let you into heaven, you can say, because Jesus has paid the penalty for me. And I've accepted that gift that he's given me. To have faith is to believe that only God can save me. Well, before we finish, in case you're thinking, this all seems a bit too easy in many ways, you know, surely God, I can just ask for grace and then um, just carry on doing what I was doing. Well, Paul answers those to respond in that way more fully in Romans chapter 6. Have a look at that if that's a, a question you may have. But here also, the section ends in verse 10 with the words, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We do do good works as Christians, well hopefully we do good works as Christians. But we do it in response to what Christ has done for us. Having experienced his grace, we are prompted to, to want to show that same grace to others. Henri <clears throat> Nguyen in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, writes this, he says, perhaps the most radical statement Jesus ever made is be compassionate as your father is compassionate. God's compassion, he says, is described by Jesus not simply to show me how willing God is to feel for me or to forgive me my sins and offer me new life and happiness, but to invite me to become like God and to show the same compassion to others as he is showing me. We will only be able to be compassionate as our father is compassionate when we fully grasp what it means for God to love us. The American pastor Francis Chan also, he grasped that and um, he wrote a book called Crazy Love. I know some of you have read that. And when he was asked why he gave the book that title, Crazy Love, um, this is what he said. He said, all my life I've heard people say God loves you. It's probably the most insane statement you could make to say that the eternal creator of this universe is in love with me. There was a response that ought to take place in believers, a crazy reaction to that love. Do you really understand what God has done for you? If so, why is your response so lukewarm? Well, later on in this letter to the Ephesians, we'll look at more detail what it looks like to live out a life of grace, to have faith um, that is alive and on fire and not lukewarm. But before we get there, Paul is pointing us to the one who made us alive in Christ. 
because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. Just have a moment of quiet to um, just let these truths sink in. And maybe for the first time you want to accept that gift of grace, um, to receive that new life in Christ. Maybe you're already a Christian and um, that natural tendency to having to prove yourself to do works has taken over though. If that is so, then let's spend a moment to ask for forgiveness. And let's pray that we would be compassionate as our Father is compassionate. Some moment of quiet just to do business with God on our own. Father, we are amazed that you, the God of the universe, should want to give us a free gift of love, of grace. And we confess there is a tendency in all of us who want to, to reject it, to, to prove ourselves, to demonstrate that we're actually pretty good. We don't need it. Lord, help us all to see that we do need it. There's nothing we can do in our own strength. And help us to be amazed that you should want to show your love towards us, to forgive us even when we don't deserve it. And thank you for the lengths that you went to to make that possible as your son died on the cross in our place. Or fill us with compassion as you have been compassionate with us. And help us live lives of grace that are in keeping with the grace that you've shown us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close now by saying the grace together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all.